So I don't think any infant says, okay, after one year, I'm going to be walking. They're just playfully experimenting, doing things for often seemingly no purpose. Researchers try to figure out, okay, are children walking toward a toy or toward their parent? And often it's just a random walk they're going on just for the, the pleasure and experience and practice of walking. Welcome to Hypercurious, a show that is all about finding happiness by embracing changes and following our curiosity. My name is Beta Luca. I'm a BAFTA-winning serial entrepreneur, angel investor, and multi-hyphenate. Each week, I unveil the most intriguing aha moments and leaps of learnings of successful leaders, founders, authors, and artists, and how they achieve incredible things by staying hypercurious. Today, I'm excited to bring you Tom Vanderbilt. He's a journalist and author of the book, Beginners, The Joy and Transformative Power of Lifelong Learning. Tom has written on design, technology, science, and culture for many publications, including Wired UK, The Financial Times, and The New York Times Magazine. In this episode, we talk about the beginner's mind and why adults stop learning how absorbing complete new skills triggers your curiosity to look at the world around you with fresh perspectives, and why we should be inspired by kids when they playfully try and fail and learn, as opposed to having a big goal to get to. Tom, welcome to Hyper Curious. Thank you, Beta. Great, great to be here. Thank you. When I came across your book called Beginners, The Curious Power of Lifelong Learning, I immediately thought to myself, oh my God, that's so me. And it's so connected to why this podcast even exists. And so I'm going to start from the beginning. You say that it gets harder to be a beginner as we get older. Why is that? I mean, a few things are going on. There's uh, the brain number one, which is an important aspect of, of learning, uh, you know, it, to describe it simply, it, it slows down. The neuroplasticity that young children have is sort of off the charts compared to what we as, let's say, middle-aged adults or, or earlier than that have. Uh, children have all these, you know, synapses that have yet to be formed. They're, they're hungrily making these connections and, and figuring out the world around them. And the cliche is that they're, they are sponges, right? And it's sort of true. And the brain... There's a theory called the less is more hypothesis that one reason children learn so well is that they have less already in their brain. You and me, you know, we have this history of all the stuff we've learned, languages, you know, actions, memories, thoughts that can get in the way. Uh, they call it interference of anything new that we might set out to learn. So, you know, if I, if I wanted to speak Italian, let's say, you know, my, my knowledge of, of English grammar would be a hindrance. It would not be a help. I mean, there's a, other hurdles as well, you know, just lifestyle. You know, children have such a, a wonderful, supportive network of people around them, praising them for, for doing what they do, even if it's not done that well. Uh, it's a very low pressure learning environment, which I think is important. You know, adults tend to put such strong goals upon the things they do. So, so that would be another another hurdle. And then I think just the negative self-talk, which would be not just the age part, you know, maybe I'm, I'm too old to start something new, but the idea that I'm going to try something and I might not be good at it, which is a you know, very hard thing for an adult whose life is otherwise based on <laughs> exhibiting their competency in, in work and in other things to, to sort of go out there and just look foolish. 
That's really interesting because it's, uh, we, we become more judgmental, right? To ourselves and to the others around us. And this expectation that we should l know it all because we adults feels quite counterintuitive to learning new things. Yeah, and ironically, what happens is that, you know, we become so impressed with our, the knowledge that we do have that that sort of cuts us off intellectually, I think, and in other ways. And, you know, one of the greatest ways to, I think, kickstart a desire to stay curious, to stay intellectually humble, to admit that you don't know everything that's out there is to precisely to do this, to try to take up a new skill in which you have no background. And you will quickly feel, you know, you're on very shaky footing, sometimes literally. But, uh, you know, I think that's just a nice refresh that the sort of expertise is a wonderful thing, but it comes with its own set of, of traps sometimes that your thinking becomes very restricted. You rely too much on what you've already learned. You're less open to other things. So we can open that mindset in other ways through through reading or, or talking to people as well. But I, th I think something about skills, you, you feel so viscerally because it's you, it's your body. You know, you can't just rely on what you know. Interestingly, uh, talking about kids, right, and how they are forced to learn and be sponges, as you said, in a completely new setting. And I remember uh, my urgency to adopt and to adapt to the British culture when I moved to the UK 15 years ago. And it was quite daunting. It was I was marveled and overwhelmed with even like small things like going to the supermarket and choose my new toothpaste brand. <laughs> And the fact is, as you're saying, like being a beginner puts you completely out of your comfort zone. And we don't want to feel like that. A lot of us don't want to feel like that, right? So what are the main traits on people who have the higher propensity to be in this uncomfortable position for longer periods of time? Maybe a psychologist would say, you know, they, they have this big five list of personality traits, which describes which is sort of shorthand for who we are. And, and one of those important things is, is called openness to experience. And I think, you know, it's, it's something that can be cultivated. But certainly people probably, some people are just more open to experience than others. Uh, and sometimes it comes, it's forced. Like you say, when you move to a new place and, and you're, you must engage with the culture or, you know, sort of in the way that a, a child, I mean, one, one reason a child learns so effectively is because the, these are very important skills they're trying to learn, I mean, how to how to walk, how to communicate. This is not, you know, some adult hobby they're trying to pick up on the side. These are very essential life skills. So you moving to a new place, you know, that you needed to function in that society. So whether perhaps you wanted to or not, you had to open yourself up to, to succeed. Of course, when you're new in London, you know, the, the sign on the sidewalk says, uh, look left, because the cars are coming from a different direction, but you know it takes it takes weeks. I mean, maybe months, maybe years to fully override that impulse you have that the traffic is coming from the other direction. So I think that's you know sort of a, a metaphor for how locked we can get into our old habits and starting new habits or, or opening ourselves to new experiences can be can feel so um, unsettling sometimes because we have such a a base of, of experience that gets in the way. I think it's uh, it's fascinating because it's almost like in the beginning of your life, you have less fear of failure because you have less stakes, right? Less things to lose. But then when you're older, you've done so much and you have so much more time on your hands and then you just go for it and say, okay, I'm going to learn things that I always wanted to learn and I never felt that I had the time to do it. And 
you learned uh, juggling, singing, drawing, surfing. Which of those activities did you feel most challenging and how did you overcome the obstacles? And I, I have a PS here. I love singing and I'm, I'm a lifelong learner of singing and I resonated so much with you that is like... <laughs> In the beginning, I just feel that I just do not have a voice to be a singer ever in my life. So, yeah, what was your experience with uh, with those? Yeah, I mean, well, I, I had precisely the same experience that you just mentioned. I, I I enjoyed singing to myself as this sort of private pleasure, but almost an impulse I couldn't restrain. <laughs> but no one ever told me I had a, a good voice, or I didn't think that I had a good voice, and I didn't. I'm not even sure what that. What that meant, I probably had the thought in my head that it was something that one is born with, that you have a natural propensity to sing, which certainly there are people who just the way their vocal apparatus is, is structured uh, might produce a tone that is particularly interesting or, or pleasing. But the thing I, my main takeaway from my whole experience was that singing is a motor skill that, that can be learned just like serving a tennis ball. Or, or a golf stroke or ice skating or, or pick any motor skill that, you know, it's, it's a muscle. It's a set of muscles that need to be trained in the right way through repetition and practice. And, and you asked what, you know, what was the hardest? I, ironically, I mean, singing, even though it does bring me great pleasure, it was, I mean, the, the very first time I was asked just by my vocal teacher, who is a very, you know, forgiving audience. This is someone I'm, I'm paying to help me get better. So, when she asked me to, to perform just a simple song, I you know it was one of the hardest things I've had to do. Uh, you know, and I, I've done public speaking and things like that, um, which don't come naturally. But the singing was just sort of felt so you know opening yourself. Um, there's a, an emotional component, I think, that uh, vulnerability. You're worried about what you're producing, the, the competency, uh, we, which we don't tend to think about when we're talking. We we think we know how to talk. Um, so singing, you know, even though it was less. I mean, something like surfing is obviously was, was kind of a physical component that was very, could be very intimidating. The size of the waves or the presence of, of marine mammals or, or uh, other surfers getting in the way, um, that, that sort of stuff was intimidating. But singing, you know, weirdly was particularly um, hard in a way. And, and when you say, you know, you, you asked what skills I have learned, I, I would just say, you know, what, what skills am I learning? Because I think it's it's an ongoing process, all these things I've picked, that there's other goals and plateaus that I might want to get to. All these things can be, can be lifelong paths, really. So do you find any correlation between the practice of being a beginner multiple times, as you did, right, with creativity? Did you feel that it increased your creativity somehow, or is there any correlation from your experiment? It's I mean, it's hard for me to know because I, I I don't know that I had some aha moment that you know, that that directly sparked. I mean, I do think you know what it does though is that it, engaging in all these new activities. Number one, it just exposed me to a number of different worlds, a number of different people that I wouldn't have met normally, and it got me thinking about things in in new ways, um, and it got me thinking deeper about things. I mean, just for an example, if, if you start surfing, you know, suddenly the ocean is not just this thing that you, you walk by and you look at the water and like, oh, the ocean looks nice. You're sort of actually paying attention to the structure of the waves. You're wondering about, you know, the, the bathymetry, as they call it, of the, of the ocean floor. So you, you just sort of connect with the, the world in, in a, a deeper way. And I mean, what, when the um, Queen's Gambit show came out here in the U.S. on Netflix and I guess all over the world, it was incredibly popular. You know, normally... 
chess in, in that movie would have been sort of like a foreign language that I would have just sort of, oh, yeah, they're playing chess, and I wouldn't have comprehended it at all. But but now I sort of knew exactly what was going on, which is not to say that I could beat uh, Beth Harmon but, um, in that movie. But, <laughs> so I think being open to those other experiences, having a deeper read on the world. I mean, there's an interesting um, set of studies uh, by uh, Bernstein uh, Root, I think is uh, the guy's name, and um, David Epstein in his book, Range, which is an excellent book about about being not necessarily a beginner, but being a, a, a wide-ranging person, kind of resisting specialization. Talks about this interesting study about um, Nobel Prize scientists. The ones who won the Nobel were much more likely to have participated in these amateur pursuits, often in the performing arts. You know, the idea is maybe that either something about that practice, you know, they were sort of able to bring that back into their their work. Maybe it just made them feel better, made them more motivated. I'm not a Nobel Prize scientist. I, I don't I don't know that I had any kind of uh, aha moment, but I think it's just it's you know number one it's increased my I don't want to say I was unhappy before, but it just there's something about skill learning that there was a study in the Harvard Business Review that talks about you know it can help combat stress and sort of build resilience because you no longer feel as if your your, your life is dependent on a few things. You sort of you you increase. There's a sense of self-expansion that happens that I think is just a it gives you a little bit more kind of a safety zone when when things get tough and you know doing something like surfing I met many people who were going through some rather stressful life events and they for them surfing was a way to they wanted to learn how to surf but it was something more it was this challenge that you know if they could conquer the ocean or this part of the ocean that the, their everyday life might be made easier, or they could bring some of those solutions back to working on those everyday problems. That's fascinating because you, yeah, I, I like what you're saying about resilience and about different perspectives in life. And I, and I guess it probably exercises your brain muscles in lateral thinking. So you feel much more expansive and capable of bringing those, even, even unintentionally, these different knowledges to the things that you do on the day-to-day. -day. So, yeah, that's fascinating, fascinating. And, of course, yeah, I think that that definitely has impact on our creativity and our, our state of happiness as well. Really, really interesting. When you're learning, you somehow feel safe. Right. So you kind of you are you, you might fail as you're learning, but but it's not something that, you know, you're going to lose a job or something that would, would have like a, a huge impact as a professional. Right. And when you turn that knowledge into a profession, eventually failure happens to all of us in our lives. So with so much available online, as we're talking about, right, so much content and so much knowledge available, do you think there is a risk that new generations will probably enjoy being this beginner's phase for longer and tap into a variety of, of subjects instead of wanting to go and become an expert into one particular field? Yeah, I, I think you're right. And, and perhaps they won't have the choice actually that it as accelerating technological change keeps happening there I mean I was just in touch with a computer scientist who was talking about he wrote this uh, sort of piece called the beginner's creed it was dealing with people who are very knowledgeable competent in in certain areas in technology but because change happens so rapidly he would often be having to teach these seminars in which he was dealing with these, these very common people who suddenly had no knowledge of this new thing. And he found that their, their psychology was, was very affected in, in a negative way. They found it very almost 
traumatic to be a beginner, and they, they've forgotten how to be a beginner to, to work that muscle. Um, so I think, yeah, I mean, there, there's a another phrase for technology, you know, the perpetual novice. And I think, you know, that that's not necessarily a, a bad thing. I think we all need to carve out, you know, certain ex- sources of expertise. But um, in terms of this lifetime job, not necessarily existing, where you're going to be using one set of skills from day one till the day you die. I mean, I mean, even my profession, journalism, which, you know, in some ways is very similar to what, you know, Samuel Pepys or someone was doing in London centuries ago. But there's there's been you know, a lot of change just in the last, probably more change in the last two decades than the last century. Uh, in terms of, you know, a shift in the, the means of production, let's say, where pe- people are now producing a lot more of their own content and things like Substack or the podcasting revolution or just the move, the move to online journalism in general. And I mean, people's skill sets have had to improve where suddenly you're asked not just to write something, but to produce a podcast, to take photographs, to upload those photographs, maybe to do some data visualization. I mean, these are all um, things that, so even within journalism, there's been, uh, you know, for various reasons. So so I think it's a very healthy impulse and, and, you know, I mean, learning to learn is what they call it, but that this is in some ways more important than the actual thing you're learning, just that, that ability to shift when needed. So you talked about the pandemic, right? That we, we all learned so much so fast about new ways of communicating and new ways of living. Do you think that it actually trained us to be less afraid of trying new things? And all of the the concept of uh, the adult beginner being seen as a as a you know a pity that you say on your book, right? Do, do you think that we now a little bit more freer as a society and more like yeah, I can take new things and you know life is I mean it's not fine out there right now, but you know we adapt, we're learning that we adapt, we can adapt much faster than we thought. Yeah, I think you're right, and I mean, I think a lot of a lot of life is very habitual, right? And and we don't we don't we're not even aware of how much is habitual. And one of the greatest ways to induce behavior change is to have a disruption in one's life. And how you know how do you introduce a disruption in one's life? I mean, often some of the studies I've seen talk about when people when people move to a new city or they change jobs or even going on a vacation, those little interruptions in in your daily life might introduce you to some new perspective or some new practice or some, some even some new food or art form that that really you know you bring back and forces you to change your behavior so yeah the pandemic presented this massive disruption where suddenly you even people who didn't want to change had to change and obviously we all had um, you know a bit more time at home but we also had this this moment of disruption where so it was sort of a magic combination where you know you had time in which to do something and then you didn't really have a choice because it was either that or just watch television all the time, which people probably did that too. So, you know, you can see, you know, anecdotally, the every site having to do with online learning, Duolingo, Khan Academy, online guitar teachers, the King Arthur Baking Company uh, here, in, here in America, you know, they have a helpline for people who have questions about how to bake. And it was absolutely, you know, flooded. So, you know, suddenly everyone wanted to become a baker. Um, I was just trying to order some seeds for the uh, upcoming gardening season. And the website said, we are not accepting any non-commercial orders because there, there's been such a, 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 a huge demand. Uh, suddenly everyone is, is gardening. So, um, 
yeah, in some ways, I feel like it's this, the pandemic, one of the few, if any, benefits of it is that it has given people this excuse to do all these things that they might have wanted to do. Excuse plus time. Yeah, that's fascinating. That's definitely the best thing about the pandemic. I agree with you. It's uh, We all like marveled in, in our kitchens and learning new things. Yeah, in, in the UK, here in London in particular, I couldn't find flour anywhere to, to bake anything for a few months. Uh, so yeah, it was exactly like that. I was just going to say, even with what we're doing right now, I mean, telecommuting, I mean, the, the Zoom revolution, I mean, a lot of people probably were uncomfortable with Zoom in the beginning, make mistakes all the time. I mean, yesterday in the New York Times, there was a story about the person who's using the cat filter during their Zoom conversation. They looked like they were a cat. So people are still struggling with mistakes, but they are adapting. Um, and, I, and I think that that's that's sort of an intri- extrinsic motivation, you know, that you've change has to come from without, which is sometimes a, a better way to make it happen, to be honest, you know, because like I myself wanted to try to learn these things for many decades, but never never got around to them until I had this moment of sort of extrinsic, extrinsic, I can't say that, uh, motivation. And I think the little bit of the fun part of it as well, which we mentioned before, right, is like we're less afraid of, yeah, showing our homes to the world and maybe having, you know, your, your, your kids coming to the screen and suddenly shouting at you. So all of those things, we, we kind of became less afraid of showing things that are imperfect, right? Yeah, it's a good point. I guess, you know, many of us have had this this private life and this public-facing life, and the public-facing life is always much more polished and, and performative and, um, you know, sort of perfect or an attempt to be, which sort of gets into this notion of, of competence. You know, we want to present our best perfect selves to the world, but then when that wall breaks down a little bit and things creep in at the edges sometimes, and I always have to check that I... Don't have anything embarrassing on my on my bookshelf. I don't I don't know what that would be, but um, you know. So yeah, it's, it's an interesting, and and of course you know, social media. Now, now that you mention it, there's an interesting thing. When I was trying to learn to sing, I was sometimes doing this online singing. It's sort of an online karaoke app called Smule, and I was talking to the CEO Jeff Smith about this, and he said in some ways it's easier to sing with someone who's across the halfway across the world than it is with someone in your own house. It's just, there's an intimacy, but there's also this distance, which makes it feel like this sort of safe space because it's a, it's it's sort of quasi anonymous. Um, even though I have become actual friends with some of the people I, I sing with, but, um, to me, it's an interesting example of what you're mentioning, how I've been able to let my guard down a little bit by singing essentially over zoom, um, which I'm not, I'm not going to suggest that we start singing right now or anything, but... Um. Oh my God, especially not happy birthday, right? When I, when I was reading your book, uh, I was like, oh my God, that's so true. None of us, you know, 7 billion people in the world, we cannot properly sing happy birthday. <laughs> I tried myself, I was like, oh my God, I'm hopeless. <laughs> and we all think we can, which is fascinating, right? Sometimes there are things that we do ongoing that we believe we become experts on that, but we actually do not pay attention enough to become good at that. Yeah, which are, that's an interesting point. And I mean, for example, in the book, I wanted to go on an open water uh, swimming expedition or, or excursion or, or holiday, really. Um, and this was something that, again, was one of these things that I'd always been curious about. I read uh, a book by Roger Deakin, a, an English writer who was in love with what he called what they call wild swimming in the UK. And it's become an incredibly popular pursuit, but 
I realized that, that swimming for me had a bit of negativity to it, and I felt that, that I was always struggling when I swam in a, in a pool. And, you know, it sort of turned out after I went to this on this holiday and had experts look at the way I was swimming that I was, I was doing all these things that were incredibly counterproductive that I was absolutely unaware of. And so this thing I had had a kind of negative relationship my whole life with because I, I couldn't enjoy it to the extent that I wanted to um, was a result of, of my really not knowing, not having been taught how to do it properly at the beginning. And a lot of what happens with, with swim instruction is that you're taught a way to to basically not, not drown in the water, but you're not maybe taught the most efficient or effective way. And this is not for to be a competitive swimmer, but just to, just to be able to, to not work as hard and struggle uh, in, in the water. So yeah, I swam for decades terribly, and then I've gotten a little bit better, and it's, it's changed my relationship to the whole um, pursuit. That's brilliant. What advice would you give to people who are listening to us right now who are beginners uh, starting a company or changing a career? Well, uh, I'm hesitant to answer From that everything because, you learned. <laughs> well, I'm hesitant to answer that because, you know, I, I didn't, this was not a career-oriented book. And that one thing I was advocating is that these were experiments you could do by yourself. One, one thing that I, I found very instructive was to not rely too much on on goals, which I know sounds counterintuitive or, or counter to a lot of the advice you hear, but or to make the goals very approachable and manageable and, and sort of little chunks of goals rather than, okay, day one, I'm going to learn surfing. By the end of the year, I want to be on this on the North Shore in Hawaii, like you know, conquering these massive waves. I mean, if I had set out that goal, it just would not have happened. This is not to sound like a, you know negative, but it, it's just simply not. It wasn't going to happen based on my skill level, the time I had to do it. Um, so you know, rather than be frustrated by this putting this far-reaching goal that I was inevitably going to fall far short of, I, I just found it more constructive to basically you know have have much much smaller approachable goals. You know, stand up, ride a wave, maybe a week later, catch my own wave. Setting goals um, can substitute in a way for the actual hard work of, of achieving the goal. I mean, you sort of, you sort of, okay, I'm going to do this. And then you, you set that goal. And then in your mind, you may have, you might've already sort of half completed it simply by, by naming the goal. So that's why I think to keep that a little more open-ended in terms of, of having, not being so discouraged when you fail to meet the goal. And certainly, I'm sure in the startup world, goals are always rampantly uh, inflated or <laughs> projections are inflated to for various reasons to appeal to potential investors and all that. Um, but we don't have to get to that. No, but I think you, you have such a good point. And, and people like James Clear with Atomic Habits and BJ Fogg uh, about tiny habits as well, right? They, they talk about this, that it's much better for you to start something that it's small enough that you feel that you're progressing, that you're achieving little by little, other than create these crazy goals that just put you in a high, high anxiety mode and likelihood you might not be able to achieve that. And then you just get stuck in between starting and, and finishing because, yeah, you just get paralyzed. Yeah, it reminds me of, of in the book, I, I spent some time at New York University with the Infant Action Lab. And this is these are a group of researchers studying how children learn to walk. And it's sort of fascinating because, I mean, children, well, we don't really know. We don't really know if infants, what they're thinking in terms of, I mean, we know they, they probably want to walk, to learn to walk. 
we don't necessarily know why or what their inner timetable is. But I mean, one reason they want to learn to walk is because learning to walk helps you learn even more. I mean, you sort of see more of the world, you can go more places. Um, but the way they go about it is very baby steps, as the phrase goes. You know, they're, they're, they're failing a lot. They they are sometimes going backwards in their progress. Um, it's sort of sometimes very unclear. So I don't think any infant says, okay, after one year, I'm going to be walking. They're just playfully experimenting, doing things for often seemingly no purpose. I mean, they, they researchers try to figure out, okay, do, are children walking toward a toy or toward their parent? And often it's just a random walk they're going on just for the, the pleasure and experience and practice of walking. Um, and that's how they learn. It's not by doing drills or by having these benchmarks. And my our own daughter was started walking very late and this this concerned me because I thought you know, she wasn't hitting her her walking goal in time and she's going to be behind her whole life and of course everyone catches up so yeah right and then we impose on them and then we freak out when they're not achieving what we expected are there are there any is there anything else you wanted to share with the awesome people who are listening to us right now any further messages anything you want to share from your learnings from the book or for the future or about yourself no, I mean, I just, you know, I, I really wrote it, I wrote the book to almost as a manifesto and that, you know, yes, to, to present ideas to people, but also to, and the thing I've heard probably the most is that from readers is that it made, the minute I stopped, I wanted to go out and do something and, and try to learn something. And to, and to me, that was, you know, a sign of, of success because that, that was really the, the, the impulse. And it, there, there's an aspect to which I won't lie. There, there's a certain obvious aspect to this. Like, of course, it's good to learn things continually. Of course, Yes, this is not rocket science, yet there's a lot of reasons people don't do it, even though it, it's not rocket science. So I just, um, and I, you know, I think for, for various reasons, and um, I wanted to counter this negative self-talk and, um, and to have that sort of forward-looking, almost youthful questing. I wrote a piece for Wired about my daughter wanted to play, she was engaged in a lot of games, but she wanted to play when she was a few years ago, Fortnite, you know, the incredibly popular global video game. And I was a child of video games from the 1970s. And so I, I certainly was no stranger to them, but I didn't really know about Fortnite. And I thought, well, is it is it violent? Do I want her playing this? So I joined, I said, okay, you can, we'll try it together. And then I can monitor and see if it's an acceptable environment. And, uh, you know, in this, her friends, I suddenly started playing in these squad battles with her friends. And this was, on the one hand, sort of ridiculous, this, this 50-year-old or whatever playing with nine-year-olds, seven-year-olds. Um, but on the other hand, it was it was sort of great because, you know, I, number one, it was something I, I did know how to do if I was a little rusty because I was playing them. You know, So I think with a lot of adults, when they look at the things that children are doing, they might think they're childish or that they're too old to adopt those things. And so I, I just would like people, you know, to always be open to these new experiences and to, to think that you can never do them, even though it sounds sort of, Trivial, you know, I think even wading into Fortnite was a way of engaging with, with technology and a certain level of, of culture uh, that that's going. And rather than, than to simply say, oh, that, that's for kids, I or I used to play video games when I was younger. I don't now because X, Y, Z. 
I think that's a great way to, to wrap it up, which should all, uh, yeah, be a little bit more motivated and willing to take action on those things and, and be playful and be willing to, to try new things. Why not? Instead of having our own ways of our preconceptions of what, what certain things are. And then you, you might even lose the opportunity to connect with your daughter, with your, with your kids, right? And you, she might be really, really happy that dad is, is playing with her. So that's pretty incredible. Until they become teenagers and then they don't want you to play with them. <laughs> yeah, they're like, they no. They say, go away. Yeah. So. <laughs> you, you stay there and I'll be here with my friends, right? Yeah. Tom, thank you very much. It was a pleasure to talk to you. I loved reading your book and I really hope this conversation and everything that you shared is, is has enlightened a lot of people who are listening to us to be motivated to learn new things in their lives. It's been a pleasure and great questions. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening so far. Make sure that you listen to other episodes. You can go to hypercurious.fm. And if you want to stay in touch, I'm around. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. You just search for my name and you're going to find me. If you love this conversation and more, make sure that you also do a five star and leave a comment on Apple Podcasts if that's your preferred podcast app. It will mean the world to me. For now, ciao, ciao. Thank you.